Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. We have a packed show today on Let Me Be Frank. First, Bishop Frank will set us straight on some of the news lately, including the idea of a Catholic in the White House, Catholics on the Supreme Court, and how faith should intersect with public service. In the second segment, Bishop Frank will help us reflect on something better, uh, Advent and the Holy Family, uh, and Our Lady of Guadalupe. Before we get there, did you know that you can take Veritas Catholic Network with you wherever you go? Yep, you can have Veritas on your phone to listen to our live broadcast, grab podcasts of Let Me Be Frank and Restless, and more with you wherever you go. Just download the Veritas Catholic Network app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or visit www.veritascatholic.com. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank, everybody. Uh, it is my pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's good to be with you, as good always. Be. Likewise, Excellency. You, uh, before we jumped into today's show, you had a, a, a cool story you wanted to tell. Yeah, I, I posted it on Facebook, actually, but it's, um, it's um, how uh, kindness can really change um, and give encouragement and hope. Um, a couple of days ago, maybe it's now a week ago, here in the office, <clears throat> uh, Debbie received a, a box from Amazon that was for me. And when we opened it up, there was an advent wreath in it. But an electric advent wreath where each candle you can turn on individually, right? right. And it, it struck me as to like, why did this come here? And then Debbie thought, well, maybe it's one of the offices had ordered it for the Catholic Center. So I didn't make much of it. And then in preparation for today, starting the preparation for the, then it dawned on me. See, in the box had no name, no sender, nothing that we had talked about the Advent wreath and how I don't like my Advent wreath because, you know, I was neglectful the one time <clears throat> and I left it lit and thank God I went back into my room. And so one of the listeners was kind enough and generous enough to send me an electric Advent wreath. Isn't that neat? That's like tremendous. It's such a sweet story. I love that. It is. And it came on a day when really, I mean, if everything went wrong, everything did go wrong. <laughs> in the pandemic. So it was just to think that there's kindness and thoughtfulness in people and how it can really be a tremendous gift, um, all without the desire to be recognized. It's just so tremendous. Yeah. It really is tremendous. God bless the person, God bless their family, really. And uh, it gave me tremendous encouragement. Excellency, I think uh, it's also a nice testament to how you also are touching people out there um, with your weekly, you're just, just reaching out to folks weekly through this show. Um, I just think it's, uh, you're doing very good work in addition to all the other stuff, obviously that you are doing excellency. Well, I love our show. I love spending this time. You know, you give me a forum, I'll talk forever. It's <laughs> never a problem. <laughs> <That's> never a problem. <laughs> well, on, on that note, then let's get into it. Cause we do have a packed show today. Yeah, so, we have a lot of controversial stuff here. Yeah, well, <laughs> for the first segment, maybe, yes. <laughs> so, we, you know, it'd be good to get your thoughts on some current events. But we'll start with something that's not uh, so controversial, I would think. Mm -hmm. And that is um, Pope Francis recently had a good meeting with Bartholomew I. 
He's the ecumenical mm-hmm. patriarch of Constantinople. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Father noted that um, the two churches have come a long way toward reconciliation. And he mm-hmm. said he's hopeful that we can attain full communion again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. But w- what does that mean then, right? W- what would full communion mean? And what it would mean is that we recognize um, not only the validity of each other's communions, but we would have the ability to receive in each other's churches, right? Because we believe the uh, communion in the Orthodox is valid, right? Right. It's a question that we're not permitted to receive and they're not permitted to receive in ours because we don't have full union of faith in the Articles of Faith. And if, you know, if there was a stumbling block historically, of course, it was the role of the papacy. And, you know, for the Orthodox, Rome is the first among equals. In our structure, Rome is the first, uh, but, but, you know, all is equal and some are more equal than others. So, I mean, Rome has preeminence and therefore there's a governance fu- function in Rome for all the churches, which for the Orthodox... Um, it's a synodal structure. So it's interesting that Francis speaks of synodality in our church because in some way, shape, or form, it's moving the churches more towards a position that they can hold in common. Yeah. Right. You know, papal infallibility also is probably a stumbling block because I'm sure the Orthodox would see that as a, uh, as a more modern innovation, Right. Um, that I'm not sure theologically where, the, where there are lots of con- there's been lots of dialogues, lots of commissions. They've made tremendous progress in the last 40, 50 years. So I'm hoping and praying the same that we could have um, intercommunion, that we would be able to to um, have full union of faith and liturgical practice between the Orthodox churches. And of course, there are many Orthodox churches, but as many as would come along and the, the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. Yes, and right. A lot of people bring up the, um, the issue of the filioque when they talk about the, uh, the mm-hmm. difference between the Orthodox and the Catholics. To me, it seems like that's something that's so easy to overcome, but the, the issue of the Pope... Um, yeah, I think the filioque has basically been resolved theologically. I think the caricature of the, uh, you know of the Father and the Son sending the Spirit, you know, caricature theologically is what mm-hmm. it, it what what in its extreme what it means it doesn't mean. I think a lot of that has been resolved theologically. To be honest, I don't think that's that would be a major stumbling block. It's it's the ecclesial polity. It's how the church functions and. That, that, I think, still remains a bit. But perhaps they are making progress in that too, which would be tremendous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the division in Christianity is scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. It has been for a thousand years. <laughs> We're approaching a thousand years in the great schism between the East and the West. And of course, among Orthodox, there are schisms. <laughs> there are mutual excommunications and... And of course, in the West, with the Protestantism arising in the Reformation, there's been more division. But, but that's a countersign to what the Lord wants. Right. Right? Yeah. It seems like once you do it once, it's easy to do it again and again. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, because, right. It, 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 you've always heard me speak of false choices and the danger of extremes and hardening one's position. 
because the truth is is a living reality in, in the Lord Jesus. It's it's alive in the in the tradition of the church, capital T, yeah. and it's guarded by the magisterium. So even theologians of any weight will tell you that whatever they formulate is an attempt to explain the mystery, but doesn't fully explain the mystery. It's, it, it, there is no human way to fully explain the mystery. Even of the Eucharist, there's something primordial and fundamental as that. We can't fully explain, right? But that's yeah. for God, right? To do yeah. completely. So there's gotta be a little bit of humility in ecumenism. Yes. Right? We, one of my um, dearest friends and family, his family are Greek Orthodox and they're so faithful and they're so awesome. Mm. But it, to me, it just feels like if there was a, a reunion of the two churches, which I pray for, um, the calendar also would be something that would have to be resolved. Uh, right. His Easter is well, always a week after my, ours. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now that's interesting. In the ancient church, that was the first area of division among Christians was the date of Easter, right? So one would hope that all Christians could agree on a single Sunday for what Easter is. Simple, something sounding as simple as that is not simple. Right. 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 <clears throat> but, but, you know, in, in the churches in communion with Rome, in the Catholic church, we have different traditions, right? Right. We have the Maronites. We have we have different churches, all in communion with yes. their own liturgies, their own languages, their own customs. So, if you imagine that we had true unity of faith with the Orthodox and true intercommunion between them, then they would remain. They would keep their own traditions, like we do. So, I think in the end. Um, we have to pray. We have to pray. And then union with our Protestant brothers and sisters is far more complicated because the theological differences are far more profound. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll take it one bite at a time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So then, Excellency, I also wanted to ask you, because um, things happen, or at least things are reported, that cause mm -hmm. confusion for many Catholic faithful out there. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. And this is not a political show. We don't choose one party over the other, but mm -hmm. Catholics do look to good shepherds like you to help us sort things out and to keep them straight. So um, on November 7th, the U.S. bishops congratulated Joe Biden for winning the presidency. And then 10 days after that, Archbishop Gomez, the president of the U.S. Catholic bishops, said that having a professed Catholic in the White House will provide some opportunities as well as some challenges. And then they appointed um, Archbishop Vigneron of Detroit to head up a working group to prepare for Biden's presidency. Mm -hmm. Then a week after that group was announced, Cardinal Gregory made some comments that appeared to have um, preempted the working group, uh, including a public declaration that he would not withhold communion from Joe Biden. So can you, Excellency, help just help us sort through all this? Right, right. And it is confusing. See, it really is a question of um, making the best of a um, of a situation that is, perhaps one could put it this way, is problematic. It's how do you make the best of the situation that is before you? You know, it's uh, I have a very dear friend of mine who is um, who has friends in the uh, diocese of Wilmington. 
And it has been reported to me, and again, I have no way of verifying whether this is true or not, but it's been told to me that the president-elect does attend Sunday Mass, but he does not come for Holy Communion. He does not come forward for Holy Communion, right? at least in his home diocese of Wilmington. And if that is true, then that is a hopeful sign, right? Because he must realize that some of his political positions are contradictory to what the church must teach to be faithful to the truth of the gospel, right? Now, he makes those choices um, for reasons known to him, and I'm not going to ascribe reasons why he would do that. Sure. But he has. And I think Archbishop Gomez was very wise to indicate that because he is a public figure, as any Catholic who's a public figure, <clears throat> to the extent that they ascribe to positions that are contrary to Catholic faith, they themselves cause confusion among Catholics. Right? But how do you make, how do you bring forward a dialogue with someone in the hope that they may see the validity of the position that we espouse? Um, how do you do that in as constructive a way as possible? And I think that's ultimately the intent behind that group. It's not so much a, a political motivated uh, strategic think tank. It's not that at all. Really, is a question of how do you engage this man, all right, who obviously considers himself, all right, to be a, a practicing Catholic, particularly yes. if he does, goes to Sunday Mass, mm -hmm. but does not fully ascribe in his political life that which we would hope he would, all right, to foster the gospel. So, if you were to ask me, I personally, what is my my view of it? My view has always been to the extent that you can engage someone in private dialogue, that is always, in my mind, the most helpful route. Because making something public and confrontational diminishes the possibility of dialogue. And the dialogue is not so that we compromise what we believe. We will never do that. But dialogue so that we, uh, we have an opportunity to cogently and persuasively explain the faith, not just to the president-elect, but the whole world needs right. to hear this. The yes. whole world needs to hear it. And be able to engage their questions, which for whatever reason may be hindering them from accepting it. And when you're a politician, there are some politicians who will say privately they believe it, but publicly they will not advocate it because they're representing people who do not believe. And therefore their position is they need to represent all their people, not just the Catholics in their midst. But you see, I personally have difficulty with that because you lead by your principles, not always by consensus, because then that's not leadership, that's just reactive, right? So uh, uh, Cardinal um, uh, Wilton Gregory's decision um, that he would offer the president-elect communion may actually be a moot point if the president-elect is choosing not to come to communion anyway, right? I, I, I really do not know. Right. But that we engage him, I think that would be for the greater good because there are some positions in life that the president-elect is 
consonant with what the church teaches. In the fundamental principles of abortion, he is not. And that is where we need to engage him. Right. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's, we have no reason to believe that uh, President-elect Biden does not want to be uh, in, his, in his heart a, a, a faithful Catholic any more than you or me or, or anybody else. And you, you make a good point because when I was involved in apologetics work, we also said you could try to win the argument, but then you're not going to win the person's soul. Right. So to engage him in private right. for the good of his soul, if you know, we as Catholics seeing him in the White House, we should we should care about his soul just like anybody else's soul more than anything else. Right, and I think also um, you have to. It's it's always a strategic question when you deal with a politician. Strategic in this sense is that our our task as Catholics is to bring the gospel to bear in every aspect of life and to be faithful to what we believe in our homes, in the public square, everywhere we are. And I think we need to be wise and thoughtful on how to achieve that goal to the extent that it is possible given the circumstances we have. Because if you aim to try to, um, to always be confrontational, it may be the satisfaction that you have really spoken the truth clearly, which we need to do. Yes. But if you bring that to an extreme, you will not foster what the gospel needs to do in the world. Right. At least even the baby steps you can take. So once again, I'm, I'm a big believer that you can talk honestly, you can talk turkey, you can be blunt when you sit someone across the table, eyeball to eyeball, and say, what are you doing? Yes. Yeah. With all due respect, but not in the newspapers, not on social media, that is not the venue to do it. It's one-to-one. Right. -one. Yes, yep. And here, the, the issue of withholding communion, it, it gather, it get, there's a lot of attention focused on that. Um, and some people think it's because of politics or political parties, but it has nothing to do with that, Excellency, right? It's about what the Eucharist actually is. And Correct. that's why it's Correct. such an important Correct. issue. Correct. I think the other thing, too, that's very interesting in that question is um, the uh, fathers of the church, when they spoke of those who came forward to receive Holy Communion and did it unworthily, um, they would say that those who receive willingly and consciously the bread of life in the state of mortal sin are receiving the bread of death. Yes. For that, for that sacrament will stand in their condemnation and judgment. Yes. Paul wrote that pretty so clearly. I, right. So the bottom line is, um, <laughs> what greater punishment is there? Seriously, right. and yeah. I, as a, as I, as a bishop, my responsibility is to educate everyone to the consequences of if you do receive Holy Communion in a state of serious or mortal sin. If you do it that way, you need to understand what it is you are inheriting. Yeah, yeah. 
And again, that's private dialogue, where you sit someone and say, you are playing with eternal fire here, that yeah. you cannot do this. Yes. And then if they ultimately choose to do it, certainly you could withhold communion. You could, but you offer it, you are also dispensing an eternal punishment. Yeah, yeah. Which is quite serious. Yeah. One may actually say by giving them Holy Communion, it is the more, it is the more provocative act precisely for the eternal consequences that come with that. Right. Excellency. It's complicated. It's, it's, yes. Um, I want to shift a little bit also because uh, there's, there's this question of, of and you, you are certainly um, addressing it, um, the, how Catholic faith intersects with public service. And mm -hmm. uh, it was also pointed out to me that um, the Supreme Court uh, recently lifted a stay of execution on a death row inmate, even though six mm -hmm. of the nine justices are Catholic. So mm -hmm. maybe can you provide some light onto the church's teaching on the death penalty? Okay, so now, uh, two things. There are two points here. Uh, regarding the teaching, um, Pope Francis has basically amended the catechism to say that there are no conditions under which capital punishment cannot be justified. Because if you recall, in the tradition, capital punishment was justified in part because it was a legitimate way for society to protect itself when the venues by which it could protect itself were few and far between. Um, now, those circumstances don't exist. That if a person truly has created uh, awful, he he heinous crimes, that person need not be a threat to the larger society for the balance of their life. The other point to the capital punishment theologically is you do end the, the, the ability of the person to seek repentance for their time ends on earth in a time of the state's choosing, not God's choosing. Right? And it could very well be that person may come to true repentance, contrition, true conversion before his natural death, which may be later than the state-imposed death. So for both of those reasons, right, capital punishment in the 21st century simply does not seem to fit. Now, you raise the question of the Supreme Court. There is an anomaly here, right? And that is the justices who are Catholic, not speaking for the others, but the ones who are Catholic may personally in faith, understand exactly what I just said. But their judicial philosophy may be that they are original, originists. That is, that they interpret the law as the law is written, not as they think the law should be written. Okay, And if that's the case, they may have the judicial duty to lift the stay because of the way the law is written, even though they may fundamentally disagree. Now, one would say, well, why could you then not throw out the law? Well, in the end, the law is based on the premises of the law before it. So you either have an activist court or you have an originist court. 
either those that stick to what the law says or those who interpret or go beyond what the law says. And I particularly think Roe versus Wade is an example of an activist court, okay, that they decided because if, if there was truly, in my humble opinion, I'm not a lawyer, and of course this could give you a flood of emails, but who am I to say this? But I mean, just logically speaking, if a fetus is not proven, okay, to be non-human, if that makes sense. So if there's a doubt whether or not a fetus is a human being, wouldn't the law, in its strictest interpretation, give the benefit of the doubt to that fetus? Right. When you interpret whether or not it has protection? But it's an activist understanding that says, well, no, no, no. I mean, the, so the Congress hasn't really defined what human life is, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and we have this horror in our midst. So it could very well be that um, the judicial philosophy that they espouse is, is, is keeping them to interpret the law as it is written. And it's therefore for the courts not to rewrite the law, it's Congress to rewrite the law, right? And Congress to, uh, let's say for example, to outlaw capital punishment, which you can do on the federal level. But the justices may may not feel it is their role to rewrite the law. Does that make sense? It does, and so that would keep them that would keep their um, Catholic consciences clear. Yeah, insofar as they may have no choice unless they abandon their judicial philosophy, and we have seen if you, if they abandon their, their judicial philosophy and become activists then that is only adding to all of the chaos we have seen for the last 30 or 40 years when the courts have, have been activists in reinterpreting the entire social agenda right. of our society. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, that's clear and that's excellent. Thank you, Excellency. And may I just end by one other thing, Steve, before we leave this. So therefore, you could imagine the great burden it is to be a Supreme Court justice because your heart and your faith tells you one thing, the law tells you another, you're bound to observe the law. And these people must be getting on their knees, particularly those who are faithful Catholics, and praying for the law to change so that they need not rule this way. Right. Yeah, and we should, we should certainly be keeping them in our prayers as well as uh, President-elect Biden and, and Kamala Harris as well. Yeah conversion for all of us <laughs> let's uh let's take a break excellency and when we come back we'll talk about something happier which is Advent. yes okay catholic radio works and now we have it here in connecticut and new york it's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization where there's catholic radio the folks who listen deepen their faith families are strengthened parishes and communities flourish so, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back, everybody, to Let Me Be Frank, featuring Bishop Frank Caggiano. Um, Excellency, so let's uh, shift our focus, and um, as we're all preparing for Advent, uh, uh, and through this Advent, um, would you just uh, walk us through where we are right now in the season? Sure, absolutely. Well, we are halfway done, right? More than halfway done. 
And, and, and that's the, the sad part of Advent insofar as it's so brief. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it can easily get lost because depending on when Advent begins, depending on when Christmas is, it could be as short as 22 or 23 days, right? If Christmas is a Monday. Mm-hmm. And everybody's rushing to get ready for Christmas. So, it, so we need to be intentional to focus in on the season. And as is true last Sunday, this Sunday, um, the figure of John the Baptist comes to the fore. And as I said before, he's enigmatic. He's mysterious. Um, speak of locusts and honey and camel hair and belts and... You know, you could imagine, you know, it's somebody you would see on the, on the D train, right? In Brooklyn, <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? That the world is ending, that kind of thing. But a towering figure, and what came to me in preparation for my homily was this insight. So uh, with your permission, I want to share it because it still is marinating in my mind. Yes, please. Um, why the desert? Why the desert? Why it says in the Mark's Gospel, John the Baptist appeared in the desert. The same for the other synoptics. Where the desert? Of course, I had the privilege of looking, being in the Judean desert when I was in the Holy Land. And it's, it's, an, it's magnificent. It's, it's in its darkness and its dryness and its barrenness. It's beautiful. There's an allure to it. Uh, but a lure that is deadly. Because if you don't know where you're going, you walk out into the desert, you're not walking out again, right? Hmm. Unless you live in the desert like the Bedouins of the Holy Land for your whole life. After a while, it all looks the same. So you say to yourself, it couldn't be for accommodation or accessibility because the frail, the old, the sick, probably young children, parents, they couldn't go out into the desert. Where are they going to go? Right. So there had to be another reason. So this is the insight. I think it is the catechism of discipleship. Our Lady is the perfect disciple. John is the first disciple, even before the apostles. Because in the very act of forcing people to go into the desert, he is giving them the method by which one could be a faithful disciple. Because you need to leave stuff behind and you need to bring stuff with you. So what do you leave behind? Your comfort, your pretense, all the trinkets and bells and whistles that our modern life thinks are so important. Chances are there may not be a cell signal in the desert you leave it behind. <laughs> and you leave behind this absurd notion that it, my life is all about me. Because if you go into the desert alone, you're going to die in the desert alone. Right. You're going with company and you're following someone else. Even the plume of dust from the distance. So you know you're going in the right direction. And what do you bring with you? You bring surrender. You bring trust. You, 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 you bring with you this unfathomable faith that God will see you to the destination, that you will glimpse, in this case, 
the first one to claim the Messiah is coming. In our spiritual life, in the desert of life, you will glimpse the Messiah. Okay? That emptying that allows the hope and the trust and the surrender to say to the Lord, I have no idea where I'm going. I have no idea how I'm getting out of this challenge. This pain, Lord, and suffering is an awful lot to carry, but like Faustina, I trust in you. That I hold on to. Everything else I let go of. That's discipleship. That's why John is such an important figure in the desert. And let me just say this. Have we not had a desert experience for the last six, seven months? Right. Shedding so much of what we were used to? And, 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 and crying out for company when we were forced to be alone. That's a desert experience. And what did we have to embrace? A basic trust of running into the, like a little child running into the arms of God in the middle of the night when we wondered to ourselves, what in the name of goodness is going on here? How am I, how are we gonna get through this? That was a desert experience. So this is the question, right? Are we, are, are, are we gonna learn from it for the long term? The lessons we learn, are we gonna forget it as soon as the vaccine comes to my front door? Or, or is this the moment for a real conversion of life and heart? For me, for you, for everyone, right? We, do we go into the desert in an air-conditioned tour bus and left? Or do we go into the desert to be changed? That's the point, right? That's what I think this Advent, above all others, is, is asking of us, right? Is asking of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we and we began this this whole COVID thing in Lent, and here we go. Hopefully, we can end it with Advent <laughs> and Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I think the whole idea. You know, it's funny. You watch CNN, you watch uh, Fox News, you watch all these other crazy networks, <laughs> and uh, universally. People are now using the phrase, we see a light at the end of the tunnel. Of course, they're referring to the vaccine. Mm -hmm. What they do not know, they have no concept, is that the light at the end of the tunnel is Jesus Christ. For who gave the researchers the ability and natural talent, the tenacity and perseverance, the courage and insight, to develop these vaccines, if not the Lord himself. Do, do, do we think we did this? <laughs> well, think again, my friends, think again. So it, it's funny, they speak in language that <laughs> they don't have quite the understanding of what they're really saying. Yeah. But they will, the whole world will. Oh, they will, it's inevitable. Excellency, we did um, we did a show a few months back on Our Lady of Fatima and a few of the other Marian apparitions, including mm -hmm. um, Our Lady of Guadalupe. But mm -hmm. I thought we would revisit Our Lady of Guadalupe because December twelfth is her feast day. It's coming up, and it's such a great feast, and she's such a great um, um, apparition for us here in the Americas. Certainly for Mexico, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's a, a source of great unity, of great inspiration. You know, as we said when we spoke of it the last time, Our Lady is, uh, 
Our Lady is the path to the Lord. She's the bridge. So the fact that she came in symbolism of a black belt that indicated pregnancy for the Aztec culture. So one could say Our Lady of Guadalupe came, right, um, with child. So she's the patroness of the unborn. See, that alone is an entire advent worth of reflection. Um, she comes, first and foremost, to stamp the head of the evil one to protect life because the first great threat to life is the father of evil and all the spiritual harm and temptation he will give to all God's children to veer them away from the gift God has given to them, which is the gift of eternal life in his son, in the father's son. The fact that she spoke na the native language of Juan Diego and, his, and Juan Bernardino, his uncle, um, shows the closeness of Our Lady and the child that she bears. Right? There isn't a class distinction. For Our Lady will love the rich and the poor and everybody in between. Right? They all are the children of her father right? and the brothers and sisters of her son. So when I think of Guadalupe, I think of life and I think of nearness, right? I have this image of uh, like my mom when I was growing up and my mom when she would sit with the basket on her lap and she would peel the, the um, string beans, take the ends off to make her minestrone. Or when <coughs> we would sit there and she would knead her bread, <coughs> you know, it's, you know, there's no earth-shattering events. No one's coming with the newscast to see that this was being done. But who cares? Because it was the closeness of the moment, mm -hmm. right, that allowed me to understand that this, this is being done for me, my sister. The same is true here. Um, we desperately need to re rediscover the closeness of the Lord in and through Our Lady. Because... Many people have walked away from faith because they've walked away from uh, an idea or a doctrine that doesn't make sense to them. A catechism they think is, is uh, irrelevant, but not from a breathing, living person, divine person that comes from the womb of the Virgin. I don't think the church can find true renewal of faith in her son if they also do not in some way rediscover true devotion to her. To Our Lady, I yeah. think one always goes with the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I, I love that image of of your mother with the basket on her lap, and mm -hmm. like you said, just the closeness, you know. And when you're a young child and you're at your mother's feet, there's just a a safety um, mm -hmm. and a comfort, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. And Our Lady of Guadalupe, mm -hmm. she said that, don't let anything worry you. Am I not your mother? Right. Um, right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I, I mentioned this the last time. On my mother's prayer card when she died, I put that prayer. It's in the back of her prayer card. Mm -hmm. And I read it every day. And when my office is done, I read that prayer every day. You know, um, 
So from our perspective now in faith, one of the things we need to remember is when we say God loves you, what tangible experience do you have, Steve Lee, of God loving you? Did he come off the clouds and come and sit with you and have a cup of coffee? No. <laughs> okay? All right. God's love for you is mediated by the events and people around you. All right? So the grace is infused directly into your soul at baptism. It's given to you in the moments of receptions of the sacraments and in the indwelling of the Spirit. But you see it apart from the sacraments, in everyday life. You see it in the people around you. So you as a father, that's the conduit. So, you know, I, I made, I made that, the, the connection with the, the um, basket for my mom is because I imagine Juan Diego carrying his tilma like a basket with the flowers in, uh, with the roses in it. You know, something he may have done many times. But it's in that ordinariness that this is extraordinary event. And, you know, you read through the literature, all these medical examinations, who says this, who says that, oh, go, please, oh, go, go. Go do something else. <laughs> really, seriously. There are so many, there are so many other things, like cure cancer. Let's, let's focus in on doing that for now. All right. Because it's not that I'm anti-scientific, but, but the truth is the great mis the truth that's being demonstrated here is clear. Yeah. It's clear. And the spiritual fruits. I mean, consider the most visited Catholic pilgrimage site in the world is the shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe. It's not even St. Peter's. Wow. <laughs> in the I didn't whole realize world. That. Yeah, it's amazing. In the whole world. It's the third most visited religious site in the entire world of wow. all religions. Wow. I mean, you consider every Muslim is going to Mecca sometime in his or her life, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's remarkable. It's just, it's just remarkable. I, I, love, uh, I love Our Lady's timing in her uh, intervention in history because um, in the you know, early 1500s, you had 7 million people who had just been led astray by the Reformation. And then Our Lady comes to Guadalupe and then converts 8 million <laughs> there so right 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 exactly well we spoke about last time the immaculate conception and then she comes to bernadette right at yeah. Lourdes. yeah all right so um bring it back to to advent then and and we look at um mary and joseph um and they had this long period of preparation for the arrival of their son uh, Jesus, um, for mm -hmm. Mary's, Mary's son, Jesus. And that preparation also covered long distances, but, um, help, help me think about how I can take their, um, preparation, mm -hmm. uh, in all their, you know, and that was, that must've been super hectic for them. Um, and we think about how hectic things are today. How can I draw from their example uh, as I'm continuing to prepare for, for the Christmas? Well, uh, that's a great question. I mean, I, and, and I presume 
even for you and I and those who are listening to us, we'll answer it in different ways, I suppose. Um, but I find it interesting that in Our Lady's pregnancy, she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, right? And, and she conceived the Son of God, immediately went to the visitation and stayed with Elizabeth serving her for a number of months, came back to discover the census requests that you got to get up and you got to go all the way to the, the city of your husband, right. right? Now, consider, just like you said, in a time when everybody's on the move and you have nowhere to stay. And in between, could you imagine the gossip, the slander mm -hmm. in this little village that when people say, she's pregnant, she's not even married, she's pregnant. I mean, nowadays, you would, unfortunately, people say, oh yeah, well, in those days, so it was self-gift and suffering and more self-gift and more suffering. So how do you prepare? You don't worry about yourself because you are not in the equation <laughs> through the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> there was no time to like, you know, put your feet up and make yourself a hot chocolate and, you know, ask for ice cream. Right. Uh, there was none. It was all about either giving to someone else or having to endure what others are being saying or imposing on you. Yeah. And to still be the joyful recipient and the joyful bearer of the, the life of God into the world by doing that. I mean, I, you cannot underestimate the greatness of the, of the Holy Family. And Joseph too, because you know, uh, I'm sure Joseph could have said to himself, I need this aggravation. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's a tradition in 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 the ancient church that uh, Joseph was a, a widower. That that Joseph was much older than Mary, and took Mary on um, precisely to protect her and to give her stability of life, so that she could fulfill her vow, which she had made to be a virgin. It would, you could almost imagine it to be more a father figure in, in that sense. Now, it's, it's, it's a pious tradition. There's nowhere in scripture that says that. No. But to be honest, it resonates in my heart. And the reason I say why it resonates in my heart is because Joseph too, um, an upright and righteous man, in the end, simply by virtue of the dream that was given to him through the angel, Set aside all the scandal, set aside, you know, all the talk, the gossip, the backbiting, the backstabbing, all that stuff that would have naturally happened. And he cared for Our Lady, right? Um, and even in the journey to Bethlehem, you could imagine him, or in the flight to Egypt, you could imagine that it was all about giving himself over in service to this, to this wife, who had this unique gift. Yeah. It was not about him. Yeah. So, so the question you raise, how do I prepare? Maybe the best way to prepare is get rid of the pronoun I for Advent. <laughs> yeah. Right? 
Yeah. And then you're in the footsteps of Mary and Joseph. Right. I love how you put that, you know, with all of the travel, all of the, the talk, all of the activity. The only way they could have done it is if they kept focused on the baby that was in Mary's womb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because there are so many opportunities, like you said, oh, I need this right now. I, I got, the, you know, I'm so tired. I got this, this. And also, you consider in a small little town, my friend, uh, uh, Joseph wasn't the only carpenter. You could easily imagine that people are not going to go to someone that they're gossiping about. Huh. He could have lost wages. He could have lost uh, 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 opportunities for work. I mean, you could drill down to this and really see how difficult that life would have been in this time of pregnancy. Yeah. Excellency, we've got to take one more break, and then I have a question for you about Santa Claus when we come back. Oh! Why do we need Catholic Radio? Because not everybody is sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? How about while at work at your desk? Catholic Radio is there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic Radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question-and-answer format show, whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology, I myself, as a priest, am always learning. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Okay, Excellency, so the email question came in. It has two parts. Um, I'll give them to you one at a time, and it's from Dominic. And he writes, Bishop Frank, the symbols of Christmas are the Christmas tree, wreath, presents, Santa Claus, and decorations. What does all this have to do with the birth of our Lord and the season and how should we reflect on these symbols? Well, the answer is it could have precious little to do with it if you approach it with the eyes of a secular, non-believing society. Right? They just become tinsel and decoration and excuses to sell products. On the other hand, in the eyes of faith, they do have symbolic meaning. They are like they break open a mystery that you glimpse from different perspectives. Right. So let's take my favorite, good old Santa Claus, right? It's interesting that the, the, the current image of Santa Claus is an amalgamation of a number of traditions, but at the heart of it is profoundly Christian, right? It's St. Nicholas yes. of Myra, right? The fourth century Greek bishop who was famous for his generosity. And quite frankly, there was one famous incident in his life where he endowed the three daughters of a peasant family so that they would have means to survive and not have to fall into prostitution, which was typical of that age for those who were truly destitute. And, of course, St. Nicholas is in Bari now. He's, he's buried in Bari. Part of him is in Venice. I mean, it's, you know, it's typical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so the kernel of it is Christian charity, right? But then you have the, the tradition of Father Christmas, right, is back into England, which is in Protestant England. But why is that important? Well, because... Given the example of St. Nicholas, in the ancient and medieval church, gift-giving occurred on the Feast of Nicholas. 
not on Christmas. And when the Protestant Reformation took hold, of all people, it was Martin Luther who wanted to break the custom of giving gifts on St. Nicholas Day because of his aversion to the misunderstanding of venerating saints. And he was the one who began to speak of exchanging gifts on the day of the Lord, which is Christmas Day. So Father Christmas arose in England as a substitute to St. Nicholas. All right? And he's more of a mythical figure, but one, nonetheless, some of the trappings of what we see with St. Nicholas, of Santa Claus, I should say, all kind of meld into what we have now. And in a sense, except for the pom-pom, the little hat that Santa Claus wears, right, if it was stiffened up, it could almost look like a mitre. Huh, yeah. All right, without the little pom-pom. And the truth is, that's who he is, he's bishop, which I take great pride in, I must confess. <laughs> so so I, I guess you lead right into Dominic's second question, which is, what would be your recommendation for teaching our kids about, you know, St. Nicholas versus Santa Claus? All right. I think, well, I would say first and foremost, every Catholic home needs a crash. As every Catholic church needs a crash. Everything flows from the story of the nativity. Yes. There's a beautiful image of Santa Claus kneeling before the infant Jesus. You often see it in stores. I think that symbolically, poetically, tells the story for a little child. Yeah. So that a child understands when Santa Claus comes, his generosity, his cheerfulness, um, his forgiveness, his kindness, are all as a messenger for the Christ child. Right? Not in and of himself. And I think everyone should learn the story of St. Nicholas. Right? We should, again, we've said it many times. It's, it's the treasury of the church's history and the saints that have lived through the ages is an unknown gift that people need to know because they're all there. And Nicholas is one of them. Right? And his anonymous generosity towards uh, the father of those three daughters actually reminds me of the uh, anonymous gift that you got that we started the show with about the Advent wreath. So, and how it can change and, t oh, you know, that's an excellent point, and touch your life. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. And I think, just if we could end with this, um, because I am so busy, uh, I, I don't spend enough time now as I used to trying to figure out the gifts I would give to the people I loved because we fall into the substitution of getting a lot and overwhelming and, you know, four or five, you gotta like one of these, you can return <laughs> the rest to all this stuff. But how do you feel when someone gives you a gift that is precisely what you need, that could only be determined because they know you so intimately? Yeah. They, they took the time to think it through you know, it's different, isn't it? What comes across is not even the gift itself, but the love that prompted the choosing of that gift. Right. See, that's St. Nicholas. That's Nicholas. That's the insight of the Bishop of Myrna. 
There you go. Is, yeah. Right? Yeah. If you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. Excellency, can I ask uh, you to give us your blessing? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen, we lift our minds and hearts to you, O Lord, in this Advent season. That the Spirit may come upon us and mold our minds and hearts that we may be a welcome to the Christ that is born in Bethlehem, to the Christ that we await as our King and our Redeemer. May these days ahead be filled with joy and peace. And we ask this in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'll see you next week, right Amen. before Christmas, yes. my friend. We're gearing up. Yes, Excellency. We're getting closer and closer. <laughs> yes, we are. Okay, my friend. Enjoy your week. Thank you. You too. You too.